so this morning, we are looking at Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. Mark chapter 9, 14 through 29. Uh, you'll, you can follow along on the screen. Um, but before we do that and listen to the story, uh, let's pray together. Uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you uh, that we can do this the way we're doing it. Thank you for meeting us wherever it is we are. And as we open your word, we pray that, that you would speak to us, that you challenge us, that you would change us, that you would heal us, you would that you would touch us in the way that we need it here today. Speak for your servants are listening. Amen. John, or Mark 9, starting at verse 14, hear these words. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus... They were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, Jesus asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of his speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashing his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, the disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. We will go that far. So much going on there. So this father brings his young son to Jesus. Now, 
From the way Mark tells the story, we might think that the boy has what we would call epilepsy. It's a condition that in the ancient world would have been terrifying with its violent symptoms. I mean, doctors can treat it now, but back then it was mystifying, it was terrifying, it was horrifying, it was heartbreaking, and people thought the only thing they could think back then, that it was, that it was caused by demon possession. What else would it be? Now, let's think for the next few moments about that little boy. Because I think it's important for us, once again, to enter into the humanity of these stories, to, to, to connect with the people who are in there. So let's, let's think about this little boy, and then we'll think about the father, and then we'll think about parenthood. And I mean, for the most part, this boy was probably a good-looking, normal little boy who did all the things that normal little boys do. He ran everywhere he went. He always played with his friends. If there was dirt or mud around, he probably found a way to play in it and get all kinds of messy. He had trouble paying attention for very long. He talked nonstop and probably asked a billion questions a day. Just a normal, just a normal little boy. And then out of nowhere, the thing would happen. He would be thrown to the ground and start shaking violently. Picture it. Feel it. His eyes would roll back in his head. His teeth would grind really hard, and he would stop. He would start, you know, foaming at the mouth and thrashing about. And when that happened, the friends, well, they would all be frightened and they would run away. And the adults, well, they would be scared too, and they would leave, and only his parents would remain. They would kneel down and and hold their son until the shaking stopped. I mean, right there, that's how I see this daddy. Like down on the ground, holding, rocking his boy, shaking his, stroking his sweaty head, telling him that everything is going to be okay, even though he didn't know if everything was going to be okay. That's how I see this daddy, helpless. He's powerless. His heart is just breaking in two. Now, I also imagine that this little boy's parents have tried everything. Doctors, medicines, special diets, you named it, they tried everything to help their little boy. So when they hear about this, this healer, this teacher from Nazareth named, named Jesus, when they hear that he's around, the daddy brings the boy to see him. I also imagine that that would have been a hard thing to do as well. I mean, they've been disappointed on so many other occasions, but yet he still brings his boy. And when he sees Jesus, he says, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashing his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they couldn't do it. And then Jesus says, oh, unbelieving generation, bring the boy to me. And as they're bringing the boy, it happens again. He has another seizure. I imagine the dad, once again, kneeling down to hold his son. He looks up with desperation on his face and says to Jesus, if you can do anything, 
take pity on us and help us. If you can do anything, there's a whole lot of doubt in that if, isn't there? If, if you can do anything. Then Jesus says, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. The guy says, I do believe, but you've got to help me overcome my unbelief. And Jesus speaks to the evil spirit and heals the boy. Oh, it's a brilliant story. Now, for me, as often is the case, three things sort of emerge for me out of the the soil that is this story. They're almost like little plants we can look at and study, and I like it. Here's the first thing. This is a story about faith. Like, we see this desperate father coming to Jesus and saying, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus responds, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. The guy says, I do believe, but you got to help me overcome my unbelief. So this is a story about believing. This is a story about faith. But here's the really interesting thing, I think, about this story. In this story, belief and unbelief, faith and doubt are companions. They sort of hang out together, side by side, right in the soul of the one who's struggling. Apparently, Jesus is okay with that. Faith and doubt sort of hang out in the soul of this guy, and apparently, Jesus is fine with that. Think about the story again. And this guy who comes, he doesn't seem to bring a whole lot of faith to Jesus, does he? I mean, I imagine that this guy really isn't sure what he believes, if he believes anything at all. I imagine that on some days he believes, and on other days he just doesn't believe at all. But look at what he does bring to Jesus, and I think this is really, really important. Look what he brings to Jesus. He brings his true self. He brings it all. He brings his true self. He brings his, his deep sense of need his deep sense of helplessness. He brings Jesus one of the most profound things in his life. He brings the love that he has for his boy. And it's enough. Jesus heals the boy. Belief and unbelief. Faith and doubt. They just live right alongside of one another, right inside the soul of the same guy. And apparently, Jesus is okay with that. You know, religious faith isn't always seen that way today. I mean, I I don't know exactly how it happened, but I think, you know, I think over the last couple of centuries, we've We've tried some things. And I think now we're beginning to understand that they're just not working very well. You know, I think that over the last couple of centuries, religious faith has become something along the lines of of intellectual certainty. Faith has become a, 
a list of ideas about God, a list of ideas about the Bible, a set of doctrines, a list of moral imperatives that we must adhere to and intellectually assent to in order to be a part of a religious community. Faith has become intellectual certainty, leaving no room for doubt, leaving, leaving, no, room for cert- leaving no room for questioning. I mean, it's all very black and white, isn't it? That's what we've been taught. And then in that scenario, faith then becomes the opposite of doubt. And if that's the case, then we might as well pack up all this stuff. We might as well close the building. We might as well sell it off and get what we can about it out of it. We might as well just quit the whole deal because here's the deal. My guess is that there are a whole bunch of really smart, intelligent people connected here, watching now, tuning in, who have all kinds of doubts, who experience all kinds of skepticism, who don't always believe and who have a whole ton of questions. And if that's the case, we're not doing the faith thing all that well. If we live into that system where faith and doubt are opposites and can't get along. But this story, if you read it, it tells us something completely different. It gives us a different framework. Like faith isn't intellectual certainty at all. It isn't black and white, not even close. Faith in this story is really messy, like super messy. You've heard the saying, take a leap of faith, right? You've heard that saying. Maybe you've even said it. But here's the deal. If faith is intellectual certainty, if faith is all black and white, then then, then where's the leap? Where's the jump? Where's the risk? Where's the fun? Faith and doubt. If we're being honest about it, they're companions living within the same person, living within you, living with me, living within me. And apparently for Jesus, that's okay. I mean, Here's the deal. Some of the most faithful people I know have all kinds of doubts. It's almost like that's the thing that keeps them searching. That's the thing that keeps them, that keeps them hungry. That's the thing that, that, that keeps them grasping after the one who made them. So that's the first thing I notice. Here's the next thing. Let's look at this daddy's cry for help. I mean, this dude is totally and completely desperate. He comes to Jesus and says, my son has been like this from childhood. It has often thrown him into a fire or water to kill him. You can imagine how he would think that, right? That he's possessed by an evil spirit. They're sitting around a campfire and it happens right there. And he falls dangerously close to the fire. Well, a spirit must be trying to kill him or they're by a stream or a pond and the same thing happens and he falls in. What are they supposed to think? But if you can do anything, take pity on him. Help us. He's come to the point in his life where where he recognizes that he doesn't have control over his own life or the life of his own son. I mean, He's helpless. So this cry for help is a cry for someone to come 
and change the circumstances in his life that he himself cannot change, that he himself cannot control. He's recognizing his own limitations. This cry for help is to change something about the outside world. And we know this cry for help. Human beings have been crying this cry for help ever since we were made, ever since we were human beings on this planet. It's something that's natural. It's real and raw. We've all done it. Maybe we've done it today. I want to read you a psalm. Remember I said last week that if you really want to learn how to pray and pray well, one of the things you can do is go to the psalms. So let's just practice. Psalm 54, listen to these words. Save me, O God, by your name. Vindicate me by your might. Hear my prayer, O God. Listen to the words of my mouth. Strangers are attacking me. Ruthless men seek my life. Men without regard for God. Surely God is my help. The Lord is the one who sustains me. Let evil recoil on those who slander me. In your faithfulness, destroy them. Talk about an honest prayer. I mean, that's a prayer for for God to change the circumstances that he himself cannot change. They're attacking me, God. Fix it. Send evil upon them. Give them what they deserve. How many of us have prayed prayers like that? I mean, it's natural. It's real. I mean, this kind of prayer is raw. This is the kind of prayer where we realize that I can't do anything about this anymore. God, you have to help me. When you lose someone you love, and you can't change that, God, help me. When you lose your job, you can't change that. God, help me. When you get some really bad news from the doctor, you cannot change that. God, you've got to come help me. That kind of prayer is, is natural. It's real, and it's raw. And even if you aren't a particularly religious person, I'm betting you've prayed that prayer before. God, help me. It's normal to say that. It's normal to cry out in that way. Finally, I think something interesting happens in this story. At first, the daddy's cry is for for Jesus to change the circumstances outside of himself, things that he can't do anything about. But then something very different happens. His cry for help is for Jesus to now change him. I believe, but you got to help me overcome my unbelief. Change me. You've got to now transform me. Fix what's inside of me. So sometimes a cry for help is for changing things outside of ourselves that we ourselves can't do anything about. And sometimes it's a more internal reality. Help me. Change me. Here's another psalm. Let's practice again. Psalm 51. 
You want to learn how to pray? Here's a good prayer to pray. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And a little later on, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Help me. Change me. Transform me. We know what this is like. I mean, we experience this on a daily basis. Now, I used to be a lot, I used to be a lot worse at this, but it still happens on occasion. And all you have to do is ask my kids, and they'll be honest enough to tell you the truth. I mean, my boys aren't going to hold back. But sometimes we'll be driving along, and, and I'll get stopped at a traffic light, right? I'm second in line. There's someone in front of me. The light is red, and eventually it turns green, but, but the person in front of me doesn't go. Now, for most people, it's like a mild annoyance. But for me, like I, I get upset, and I actually start talking to the person in the other car, even though they can't hear me. I'm like, oh, no, you didn't. Dude, you've got one job. You're at a traffic light. It's red. When it turns green, you go. Go. What are you waiting for? And I'll talk to, how ridiculous. How, how ridiculous is that? So impatient. But here's the deal. When we do things like that and we start practicing things like that alone in the car, like we're, we're getting better at those things. And so that ridiculousness, that impatientness, that impatience sort of bleeds into the relationships in our other, in our lives, like our relationships with our friends, our family, our spouse, our kids. You know, we do this. God, you got to help me. You got to change me. And how many other things are there like that in our lives? I mean, things like anger and lust and greed and jealousy and self doubt, and that list just keeps going. Help me. Change me. Sometimes a cry for help is about asking the divine to change the circumstances in our lives, circumstances over which we have no control, and sometimes it's more of an internal thing. Help me. Change me. I want to end with, a, with an old Buddhist parable, actually. I've shared it before, but it's so good i got to share it again. It's a story I heard told by by author and speaker and all-around really good dude named Peter Rollins. The story goes something like this. There once was a woman who had a beautiful baby girl. But after only a few days of life, the child dies. The woman is distraught. And she goes 
and she takes her little child and she wraps her in linen and then wraps the linen so that her little child would be close to her body. And then she goes in search of someone, anyone who can help her resuscitate her child. Faith healers, elders, witch doctors, but no one can help. And finally, some people in the village tell her that up in the mountains, there lives a a holy man, someone who is so close to the source of all things that he's the one who can help her. If you're desperate, go find him, they say. So she does. She packs up some of her belongings and heads to the mountain in search of this holy man. She's been told that she'll find him living in a hut that's next to a crystal clear lake. Finally, she finds the lake and she sees the hut. She knocks on the door and when the old man answers, she begins to weep. I don't know if you're the man I'm looking for and I don't know if you can help me but my child is dead and I must have her back. The old man replies, I am the man you are looking for and yes, I can help you. But first, I must concoct a potion and I need some mustard seeds. Mustard seeds taken from a home that has not been burned by that black sun of suffering that has touched your life. Go back into the village and bring them to me. So the woman goes back to the village and she's not able to find any home, not one home that has not been touched by darkness, death, and sadness. And yet, And yet, as as she hears the stories of other people's suffering, as she hears the stories of, of other people surviving through their suffering, she is gradually able to come to terms with the death of her child and finally bury her in the earth. From help change these circumstances outside of myself to change transformed on the inside. Friends, this thing we call faith, it's just messier than we'd like to believe. In fact, it's a really messy thing. Faith and doubt, if we're honest about it, live inside of each of us. Faith is not intellectual certainty. So in the past, if you've wrestled with some doubts or beliefs and it's caused you to feel like you don't belong, well, not here. Nah, man. Welcome to the family. We're all wrestling with that. All of us. And there will be times when we cry for help, when when we ask God to change circumstances that are outside of ourselves, beyond our own control. And, And there will be times when we ask God to change what's inside of us. But just know that here at Renew, here in this place, this community, you've 
You've got a community who will walk with you no matter what. Let's pray.